Hello everyone and welcome to Twig 241. We've got a great episode here for you today and here with me to dissect all the latest news is Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What up? Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Jen Donahoe, head of publishing at Startup High Def. Howdy, everyone. And I'm Laura Taranto, head of new games at Big Fish. All right, so if you're listening on Spotify, there's a way to leave comments, and we're starting to read those comments. So if you want to leave us any notes, questions, or just holla at us, scroll down, press on the reply button below the episode description. Is that a new feature? On Spotify? Like they didn't have comments before? All I know is Mishka sent over a couple of them and was like, hey, there are comments here and questions. We can we can read these and talk about them. It's actually very difficult to rate and review in Spotify. I was trying to tell someone how to do that. And if you want to go into the Deconstructor of Fun Slack channel, if you want to apply to be a member, we read all of the comments and engage with you there too. So another great way to pick our brain and engage in conversation. Jen, you engage the most. I probably engage the least. Well, I yeah, well, we'll we'll get you up there, but it's fun. It's fun to hear what the community is saying, and it, the whole purpose for this is to have a great games community. I think we're the biggest games community, so it's a fun place where a lot of really senior folks offer a lot of really insightful comments about you know experiences they have. So come join us. All right, some corrections. This is not a correction. It's just an update on gardens. Clearly, I poked the hornet's nest on this one. Um, this obviously was a very popular deal, uh, funding round for the VC community out there. I think all VCs probably looked at this deal at one point, and likely this was oversubscribed. They probably raised the valuation and raised the round of funding, all that stuff that goes on over this type of deal. So first of all, what I did fail to mention was the fact that our the genius Brilliant, absolutely phenomenal Mr. Chris Petrovic, friend of the podcast at Fun Plus, was an early investor in Gardens along with Shanti and Andrew at Transcend, which we said last week. So I imagine they're feeling pretty freaking good about themselves after this round because now their investment is worth a gajillion more dollars than it was. So anyway, they raised four and a half million in 2021 with Transcend, One Up, and Fun Plus, and Mr. David Barron. So the one actual correction is that team does have some experience with live ops with the game Sky. I think it's popular in Asia, if I remember correctly, but not much direct experience from the team. So they will still have to hire the right people to design and manage any type of live service for this game. So not that I don't think they have real direct experience, but that will be a challenge for them to get the right people to actually fulfill this dream. But anyway, the fundamental issue still remains for this type of investment, in my view. You know, when it costs 150 to 200 million dollars to make a game, and you're trying to compete against that, and another 100 million to market a game to compete against the big boys, it's going to be tough. I mean, they raised 36 million so far, right? So <laughs> they don't quite have enough money. And by my math, you know, giving them kind of the benefit of the doubt. I think it would likely cost at least another $70 million to get this game done, another $50 million to market the game. So, you know, another $70 million in funding to get this game to market or get this game developed would kind of put them close to like a $400 million valuation if I do my math right. And I'm sure the VC guys will come after me on this one. So basically, by the time they release their first game, 
they will likely be worth $400 million if they need to raise that kind of money. So I guess, you know, if they had a successful game, which I think they could, right? Let's say they do 4 million units at an average price of $50, million, $50, and then they also did $100 million in live ops. That's $300 million in revenue. I think that would be probably a double, right? Maybe a triple. But with all the costs associated with making this game, that's like almost break even at best, right? So exactly what kind of multiple a publisher would pay for that type of business, right? I think this team is valuable and they would buy it, right? But at that point, they would have to start over with a new game, right? And another, you know, three or four years worth of development, right? So what do you pay for that? That's the question I have. And the math kind of doesn't work. You know, do we have two times historical revenue? right? You're buying a company that got all its revenue, or maybe you buy it right before it releases with the anticipation, you know, right? So maybe you buy it for two times. So that's maybe $600 million. That return sounds great, but it's not at a $400 million valuation in series B. And so at the end of the day, this is like a single or a double for a VC at best. It's, it doesn't fit the kind of profile of the 10x returns that are expected from venture capital. And David Kay actually has a great quote when he was talking about this. Is like, this is kind of the risk profile of a seed round with the upside return profile of a B round, right? And that doesn't compute for me. You know, the, the VCs are basically going to say the top line is going to be a lot higher and it's not going to cost as much. I'm sure that's their feedback to me. And that the valuation that I'm suggesting is probably too high, maybe. But at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem like this is something that the VC community would have looked at like, five or 10 years ago, right? This is just something that there's so much money out there that they need to spend on something, right? But I just don't see the scenario in which you get a 10X return on this kind of investment, even in this round, right? I could be wrong. And if clearly Fun Plus and Transcend are feeling pretty good about themselves, I mean, their valuation's just gone through the roof, right? So they made the early investment that's gonna get the return most likely. And the best part is, as I said last week, is the company has money to fund their vision right? Like that's the whole thing, right? You know, let's leave the math up to the VCs to figure out their returns, but they're going to be able to build an amazing game that will be beneficial for the rest of the customers, you know, the customers out there and the, and the industry as a whole. So let's see what happens. I have a dumb question. So when I think of games that I'm going to work on, I usually think about long-term games and short-term games. What kind of games I can get out in the short term and what kind of games we're going to invest more time in and you know, we would launch them two, three years out. Do you think that from the VC point of view, this could be a longer-term bet in their portfolio where they wouldn't want an exit after the first one? the first game, but it would be like, you know, we want to work with this team. We want to launch three games that are going to reuse their engine, iterate the engine, like, you know, Breath of the Wild to Tears of the Kingdom, and then the big, big exit over a longer period of time. The problem is that is that like, you're basically starting over after this game. Now, if they build some insane software as a service that's generating like Apex or something that's generating two or $300 million a year, you know, that's a different story, right? So that you know, are VCs going to wait around for another product cycle? I don't think so. At that stage, it makes sense to sell to a publisher that can, you know, reinvest and build a uh, scale, right? But maybe, I mean, maybe that is the longer term thing. I'll ask to ask Mr. Moritz to see what he thinks. By the way, Mr. Moritz, I'm not really criticizing Mr. Moritz. Like the fact that he's a self-promoter and that he really is like, you know, out there and his press release was like, it got your attention at least, right? Of course, it seemed to ignore all the other investors, but whatever, you know, Mr. Moritz does his thing, you know? But 
I'm glad he's out there. I'm glad he's out there making waves and making investments. Yeah, it's great for the industry, right? Like they're putting money into big ideas that are going to make these games that players are going to love in the next five to 10 years. And Laura, I think you're right. Like this is a super long-term bet. And, and Cress, earlier when you did your math, did you factor in the marketing budget as well, which the marketing budgets for these games are now as much as the development budgets to make sure that these can launch successfully, which is insane. I had all this complicated math like written out and I'm like, dude, this is so boring and hard to follow. But yes, like most likely they will hire a publisher, right? They could self-publish potentially, but the amount of money that's going to be required to publish this game, even to get the 4 million units is going to be you know, at least $50 million at least, right? You know? Like, yeah, then you bring them the publisher and then you're giving up a rev share to them, right? I'm assuming the rev share is going to contribute to the marketing, right? Yes. I have the perfect solution. TikTok. Get a really good influencer, get people playing their game early. It's organic. Done. No. Done. <laughs> How about yes and? We'll do that. Actually, later on, we'll cover TikTok has a bunch of new updates and we'll kind of dig into that. Okay, so we have next, we're trialing a new format. And I was thinking that we would just call it something like quick hits. So just super short updates. We're not going to like dig into them, but we wanted to at least cover some things that are that are happening where if there is a lot of interest, we can dissect it in a future episode. So Jen. All right, here we go. Savvy Games Group, a wholly owned subsidiary of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, has officially closed its acquisition of mobile developer Scopely for a mere $4.9 billion. Also in the news for Scopely, they acquired Scotland-based Tag Games at the end of June. The partnership first started in 2021, and Tag is 17 years young and has 60 employees. I know this is rather big news in the game industry, especially in the UK. Also, Sony signed a binding 10-year deal with Microsoft to keep the best-selling COD or Call of Duty series available on PlayStation. Uh, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard have also extended the merger agreement date to October 18th. So giving us months and months more of hearing us talk about this deal. Yes, I'm so Ugh. excited. Let's get it over with. I guess they're just waiting for the CMA, I guess. Yeah, that's what happened is they're giving the CMA time to think about it. So also Lightspeed Studios, a subsidiary of Tencent, has acquired the UK-based console games developer Lucid Games for an undisclosed sum. Stumble Guys stumbles into its next collaboration now with Mr. Beast, who is the number one YouTuber if you're old like us and maybe you're not familiar with Mr. Beast. He's probably the biggest influencer on the planet. Roblox is going to let developers offer subscriptions in their experiences. So new news there. They're also in the news for grappling with employee demands for more diversity in the industry. As you know, it, every company gets its time in the sun for this challenge, and now it's Roblox's. So that covers our quick hits. And if you like it, don't like it, leave any comments in the Spotify podcast comment section. All right, so first topic, we're talking about... <laughs> crypto, <laughs> specifically Sega and crypto. So Sega, one of the biggest advocates for the integration of blockchain into gaming, has announced its withdrawal from this space as the crypto winter persists. Sega's uh, co-COO, uh, Shuji Utsumi, has said that Japanese gaming giant is yet to discover what blockchain is good for. And someone commented uh, rather sassily, it's good for nothing. 
Uh, specifically, Mr. Utsumi has said that the company will withhold its biggest franchise from third-party blockchain gaming projects to avoid devaluing its content. So this is a little bit of a spicy article. I take two cents on Web3. I stand by it's it's a great idea. It's just the tech wasn't there to support it as a widely adopted payment system. I also pulled this last week. So MasterCard is introducing a multi-token network, which is a venue for other parties to develop digital asset products and validate users for financial institutions, fintechs, and central banks. It's going to start in the UK. I believe they're taking, they're looking for different people to join them and use it. And the plan is, you know, eventually to develop it in other markets afterwards. So I feel like dead is a term that wants to get a lot of attention. I just think it's paused personally. People jumped on the bandwagon probably a little bit too early, but with, if you're going to have like a MasterCard that's doing this innovation sprint to figure it out, I think it may have a future. I mean, the issue is it needs to be commonly adopted and it's just not yet. And when I say future, I'm talking like one to four year future. Any thoughts, Eric, what do you think? You're really conflating huge different things, right? Right. One is a, as a payment system, generally speaking, but then also from the game development perspective, it's about asset ownership within games. I mean, they're two sides of the same coin, but they're completely different animals in terms of why Sega is getting out of this business, right? This stuff is pretty nascent. I think there's a lot of games that are being developed with blockchain in mind, not crypto. That's the difference, really. And we'll see if any of these are successful and see if they've gained any traction. But I think we are in a relatively large hiatus until new things come up and new projects get off the ground. Does that make sense? I think there's more here, which is that if it's going to win, I think it'll win in the East. We've seen some Eastern developers start to spin up some divisions. You know, this is Sega retreating, but then there's Cyber Agent, which is behind that horse racing girl game that always does like an incredible amount of revenue every single month and like blows people minds that it exists. But they spun up a 40 person team. They're scaling it to 100. Square Enix is still in this. We see the occasional MMO, the Eastern MMO, start to integrate some crypto elements into the game. And it looks like there's an opportunity here for the East at least to get this kickstarted. I'm not seeing how the West is going to overcome all of these issues. But when it comes to high LTVs and high ARPU, it, it looks like the East might actually be down for this type of engagement mechanic. But not in China, right? China outlawed it completely, didn't they? Not in China and not in South Korea, because I believe they outlawed NFTs as well. But I can see Japan taking a liking to this and they can at least, I'm sure, get their games in somehow. I mean, things are always banned in China and somehow they find a way to live. Well, anyway, Japan's a great market, but it's a very small population. So I would suggest that if they actually see success with some games, at least you'll see what success looks like. And then people will be able to replicate that in other parts of the world. But having it isolated in Japan does not necessarily bode well, particularly for Western blockchain companies. True. And it still suggests like a way over investment of VCs into the space for returns that will never materialize. Right. That makes total sense to me. But there are a lot of outcomes here, right? There are a lot of equilibriums you can reach and everyone seems to think crypto is sometimes boom or bust, but there are a lot of ways that it can persist, you know, maybe as 5% of the market, maybe as 10% of the market. I don't think it's going away. The question is whether or not it's going to grow at all. Right. So I guess I want to be clear here. I hear this argument that, you know, the Asia is going to be the savior of crypto and like that's where all the activity is headed. But what we've said is basically it's in Japan, right? It's not even in the biggest markets, right? So I don't think it's going to save crypto. I think it's only going to be an example of what you can do and the R&D and the investment is going to be there. And hopefully maybe that will persuade others to get more interested and start building stuff for it, I suppose. Right. So. Maybe like five to 10 years from now, something happens. 
something may have happened to persuade more people to look at it in the West. So Google Play had some policy changes around this that happened this week. So let me give you a little bit more context and we can dig into how Google Play might impact this. So they announced a policy change to permit game developers to integrate digital assets such as NFTs into their games and apps. Google defines blockchain-based content to be tokenized digital assets secured on a blockchain. In accordance with the policy, developers may not promote any potential earning from playing or trading activities and must be transparent with users about tokenized digital assets. So this means no play to earn messaging. This means that you cannot really incentivize your players to use the NFTs as kind of gambling. Testing starts on this later this summer with the NFL Rivals team. I know they were out there as part of the news for this, and it goes into effect on December 7th. Thanks to Rob Carroll, who posted a great recap in the Deconstructor Fund Slack channel. If you want more on this topic, a really nice summary and what does this mean in terms of how do you design your game? So for me and my take on it, it seems like Google's opened the door a little bit and given life to NFT, Web3, blockchain-based games, whatever you use to kind of describe these guys, they're going to take a leadership position over Apple's much more conservative stance. Google plays 71% of the global app economy and, and their market share is pretty big. This is obviously excluding China because Google Play is not in China. We talked about before, China has taken a pretty hard stance on it. So it seems like they're allowing for a little bit of innovation, which is generally a good thing to let some game developers try this out. And by the way, it's not just games, it's apps as well. So Reddit is very excited about what this means for NFTs in terms of your profile picture. So we might see some interesting use cases now, Chris. Does this change what you were saying earlier? Look, the devil's in the details on these sorts of things, right? So what are the restrictions that they're putting in place that that restrict the ability to make design decisions for these games? So in this sense, like loot boxes will not be tolerated. Crypto mining not allowed. It specifies that NFTs should not be consumed or used in game to enhance a user's experience or assist them. (laughs) That seems very limiting. I mean, am I crazy? Right. I'm not a game designer, but like that seems uh, what the fuck's the point, right? You know, I think they're just giving themselves latitude to like pull back on whatever they want. Like it's supposed to be blank. I'm sure they will narrow this down because I mean, what can you do with that policy? You can do nothing. Like, I <laughs> where do you go with that? Like, what are we selling here? It's ridiculous, right? Okay. Yeah. Developers are not allowed to promote or glamorize the potential earnings from playing or trading NFTs in their apps. But that's the whole fucking point of owning these NFTs and stuff, right? Is to peacock and show off your shit, right? And then on top of that, the, the fact that you can't monetize your investments, quote unquote, like you can't go pay to win or pay to earn or whatever. I mean, that's what the NFT economy is all about right now. So it seems very limiting currently. Now, what's interesting is that Google's had more of a restrictive stance on gambling. So this is interesting that they're kind of the first movers in this but nonetheless oh this is super illegal oh this is this is absolutely super illegal eric <laughs> like the fact that you can open a loot box and that loot box can have what they call out of circuit value or that it can have real world money money that you can earn by selling the item that is exactly what is in every fifa case when judges are presented with ea's arguments they always say well the money is contained within the system you can't cash out they make this huge distinction between in circuit and out of circuit auction systems and crypto clearly 
truly fails this and they've been failing it for a really long time as soon as you introduce packs you know if you're dropper labs and you're doing nba top shot that is clearly illegal under all of these laws and you definitely need gambling laws but no one calls it out because reddit doesn't care and reddit is always the group that has driven the loot box conversation in games they're just not interested in crypto so no one gives a shit about this it's a ticking right. time bomb that's just been sitting there for years i've said that a million times i mean basically the, the policy is that you can't do that that kind of restricts again another design decisions but but anyway this will not be allowed. Apps that sell bundles of NFTs without disclosing the specific contents and values of the NFTs. So it's just no randomness, no loot box stuff. Pay-to-pay -pay social games such as slot machines that reward NFTs, not allowed, right? And again, this is basically restricting gotcha, right? For NFTs, more or less. So it's really hard to imagine how people can build effective NFT type games with all these restrictions in place, but I think that gives the opportunity for the developers to figure it out, right? And Google says it's like partnering with some of the industry partners that, as well as other developers, to kind of help support these blockchain apps. But we'll see how these design decisions are made and how effective they can be given these restrictions. It was on uh, David Johansson's podcast. I think you might have met him before, Eric. I have. He runs Blocklords, which is another game that's coming out soon. Yeah, yeah. And the number one thing I pounded the table on over and over again, and this was before the news was announced, was distribution, distribution, distribution. Like crypto is always in like its own fucking world, worried about its specific set of problems. And like the first gate you need to pass is that you need to be able to get your product into the hands of consumers. And the fact that so many people in the crypto community thought that they were going to overthrow these powerful platforms and go direct to consumer was a joke from the beginning and it's never panned out. And so they've had two lifelines in the last six months. They've had Epic Game Store, which is something. It's certainly not much in terms of share of the market, like maybe 5%, maybe 10% of share tops. So they have a small lifeline there and now they've been granted this other small lifeline in mobile. It is something, but ultimately like stop worrying about all these platform problems. Let's start with getting your game into the hands of players and not making it a pain in the ass to interact. And then let's worry about like all of these tack on problems. But this is a start to something. I think you've got to give crypto like a little bit of light here with this news. They have something. Again, hold on tight, crypto. The other point I'll make though is that regardless, they're going to still have the same problem as other other mobile game company, right? Is that you still have to acquire users, right? Nothing about crypto makes it easier to acquire users, right? And no one's doing the LTV math. No one has done that. It's super frustrating. It's harder. The friction to set up a wallet and, you know, you have to disclose if you have a wallet within your own game, you have to disclose how you set that up. I've tried to do this on a number of occasions and I consider myself somewhat tech savvy and it's a grind. So imagine the average consumer. So maybe mid-core games, maybe games with a little bit more tech savvy of an audience, but the ability for this to hit the casual market or a mass market is very, very challenging. The communities of people who engage in the NFT side of crypto, basically, which is trading cards, it's old school tops trading cards or trading Pokemon cards, is a very, very small community who's really interested in following the ebbs and flows of that marketplace. So until they figure out innovation on that side of things for a broader consumer set, I think, you know, it's innovation, it's a gateway, it's a way for people to start testing. Great. Start working on the other stuff too. This is why I brought up the MasterCard thing. I know they're not working on the specific tech we need, but once you have these big players looking at it, I feel like that's the yeah. beginning. I think it's helpful. Again, it's only the beginning of them making it easier to transact, I suppose. In, in this marketplace. That's one of the biggest frictions, at least for casual. I mean, God, I don't want to fill out another, what is it? No KYC for setting up a wallet. That's a pain in the butt. You find ways to remove that friction. 
I think it could be interesting. I mean, I'm no crypto expert, but I assume if there's a really good game and you now have another additional platform making a part of it that would have been difficult easier, it now it could be an interesting trend. Okay. My last point on this. It's fundamentally challenging is that the benefits of what crypto does in terms of asset ownership and asset selling and trading and making money, all these things that make this thing unique from the perspective of owning assets is being kind of restricted by the Google policies that we're talking about, right? So my whole contention all along is that if you're going to build a crypto game, you build it for that core contingent of people that are lunatics that are trading on the margin, trying to build shit and make money and all this other stuff. That's the market. Agree. Right now. And that's so rare. That's the best use case we have, which is so rare, which is a $4 billion company. It's a fantasy sport. They've knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Pay to win. Absolutely. But Everything that Sorrera is doing is being restricted by this Google policy to some degree, right? Am I wrong on that? I actually think Sorrera is a counter to what you're saying. So Sorrera actually doesn't use loot boxes. And I think this is the model that crypto games will adopt, which is you just list items directly on the auction house. And that also lets them float to their highest marginal value price. Like you want, you want floating prices. So they don't use randomized mechanics. So they'll just put like Lionel Messi on the auction house and directly list it for users. So there, there are ways to get around this. But they can't resell them? You can resell Lionel Messi. The question is, like, can you sell Lionel Messi under the Google Play rules here? And I don't believe you can, or at least they're going to collect a 30% toll tax every time you make a transaction, which just sort of kills the marketplace. I think what Sorare has, though, is they actually do have good web distribution. Like, there is an intersection here between the web stores we've seen and Web2 come out to save platform fees and crypto building a lot of the crypto backend on web. Like, that's ultimately what they're going to have to do here anyways, which is take all this stuff off platform. It's the only way any of this is going to work. And ultimately, Apple and Google still get to decide how much of that they're going to tolerate because they can renege on a lot of this stuff. You are at the whims of the platform holders crypto. Like you aren't, there, there is no revolution on this one. Like you have to serve these platforms and you have to make them happy. The other part is that the whole point of this crypto thing was to go off platform, right? Is to be independent from, from platforms and not have to be restricted by them. So Google throwing a lifeline is kind of contrary to the whole point of blockchain gaming to begin with. But anyway, whatever. It's going to evolve over time. And that's why I've been saying five to 10 years, you know, let's talk about this and see how far it gets. But it's just not a revolution. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game 
game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. All right, switching gears, giving us an excuse to celebrate the Women's World Cup. Jen, let's talk about EA. Woo, woo. Sorry, I'm wearing my USA Women's World Cup shirt, and I know this is an audio medium. Sorry, you won't be able At the end, Laura, I'll let you take a screenshot so we can put it in LinkedIn. Okay. Don't worry, Jen, you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you're a football fan, that's soccer for those of us crazy Americans. In honor of the Women's World Cup, it kicks off actually today, if you're listening to this on Thursday, July 20th. Let's talk about one of the best-selling game franchises of all time. So in a keynote uh, live stream this week, EA gave more details about the future of FIFA, which is now rebranded and called EA Sports FC. If you're an American and you're like, what's FC? That's football club. You would be surprised. I actually get that question a lot. So the new game going forward is called EA Sports FC 24, and that's the version. So some news from that live stream just wanted to share. There's some additional women's European soccer leagues that are joining. And Ultima Team, which was formerly called FUT or FIFA Ultima Team, is getting the women's teams as well. The women's national team and the NWSL, which is National Women's Soccer League, they were in FIFA 23, and so they're just carrying forward. So it's really great to see the parody of all of the football and soccer world represented in the game. Also in the live stream, they announced a new esports platform and a new mobile FC tactical turn-based game is going to be launching. Apparently, somehow, they didn't mention the word FIFA during the entire show. Can you imagine how many times the presenters had to rehearse <laughs> to not slip and say FIFA after 30 years of doing this? I would have loved to be sitting in on one of the rehearsals with a bingo card in it turning into a drinking game. <laughs> oh, can you imagine like every time somebody slipped, it's like, you know, you're deducted $5,000 in your salary. And that would probably would have been a strong motivation for them. So I wanted to give a little bit of take on this because it's a really interesting and fascinating brand conversation. So back when the announcement was made, when EA moved away from FIFA, I think, you know, a lot of people were like, oh my God, can they do it without it? It didn't seem to actually have any impact on the stock price at the time. I know that lots of factors are in play around stock price, but I would have anticipated if the market was worried about that, that would have been a way to signal their worry. And so it really made me think about, you know, is there even an impact into this? Is there an impact brand equity of FIFA or of EA Sports? What really matters the most? When I think about this and when I used to work there, and I know a lot of the folks that worked on the business development and the licensing side, is EA really had the power to lock up the leagues, the teams, the players. I think that's what really matters to the players of the game, not necessarily the, you know, the name on the box. So I think it's a combination of, you know, a little bit of the name on the box and then letting players be able to play the players, the teams that they adore and the stadiums they love and the leagues that they follow. I think that's kind of the core of the brand equity in this particular situation. I'm sure the EA team did a, a shit ton of research to really know the brand hierarchy, to really understand what matters to players so that they could eventually 
do the math and walk away from the deal with FIFA because FIFA was like likely asking for more than what it was really worth. So I actually, from a prediction standpoint, Chris, I wanted to do this with you too. I don't predict any major impact to EA Sports FC console or even the mobile titles going forward. I think it's a win for EA to let go of the FIFA license, establish their own. There's a lot of work they got to do there, but I think it's going to be no impact. What do you think? Let's do predictions. <laughs> this thing is pretty freaking complicated, actually. Maybe I'm making it more complicated than it should be, but I think you need to have a little bit of background to understand where we're coming from and where we are and what the perception of the consumer is and how that perception has been changed or has built over time. So it is very well understood or believed that EA has helped create the FIFA brand as much, if not more, than FIFA has developed the EA sports brand. So they were partners in building up the FIFA brand for the last 30 years, and the game itself helped promote FIFA tremendously, right? And so this partnership existed. And I know the guy, and I can't think of his name, it's driving me crazy, but the general counsel, old guy, he, he retired. He was the one that architected this deal for the last 30 years and was negotiating with them in good faith to do it. And so they've always had a sweetheart deal with FIFA from a licensing perspective because of that, because they built their brand to some degree. Was it Joel? Joel Lindster, yes. And a friend of the pod, Lee Rawls as well, was really instrumental, especially in getting the women involved. So I wanted to throw that out. Yeah, right. And to be clear, EA has done a lot in terms of for all sports, including NASCAR and NBA, NFL, whatever, it's consolidating these licenses and being able to license this out, not only for, for games, but other things as well. And Joel himself was one of the big architects of that, along with many others at EA. So the second thing that's really absolutely need to be clear here is that FIFA is FIFA, but also EA has developed relationships with all the leagues and all the players and all the teams over the years to make it the most comprehensive game in terms of licensing from a teams and league perspective out there, right? They basically dismantled the competition through sheer like biz dev, corp dev licensing, et cetera. And that obviously was at Joel and others there. And they basically destroyed the competition, including like Pro Evo from Konami. All right. The third thing is that, and I don't think this is even controversial, is that FIFA is considered one of the most corrupt sports organizations on the planet, right? For the last 20, 30 years. So during this time, FIFA has been just doing very, very sketchy, illegal shit over the years. And all these scandals kind of like came to came to roost. And this new guy, Gianni, I think he took over. And so when he took over, there was a lot of pressure for him to build up the licensing revenue, and which kind of pushed him to play hardball with EA, you know, this long-term partner. And they were seeking over like double the annual fee of like $150 million to attach their brand to the FIFA game. But also they wanted to leverage it for other interactive properties as well. Kind of removing the exclusive was what. So basically they were trying to get double the amount of money for less exclusivity. But clearly at the time, and we covered this on the podcast before, his advisors don't really understand the video game business at all, right? And they don't know how challenging it would be because he made some claim that they can build an authentic FIFA game in the next two years, which is fucking ridiculous, right? To compete against the new FIFA World Cup, which EA's game, which is ridiculous, just on its face. Anyway, so that's kind of the background of this. And so what do I think, right? The reason I brought this up is because FIFA brand is so intertwined with FIFA, the game, that the perception of the audience is that 
they will lose authenticity by not having FIFA invade. So they will lose the licenses of the players and the teams and the leagues. That is not the case. That is absolutely 100% not the case, right? The only thing they really lose is the FIFA brand as well as the World Cup that's going on right now, as a matter of fact. So, but this is the perception of this audience that has been buying this game forever. So there's some research that has been done that this is a real issue, that there's a big portion of the population of people that buy this game that thinks that this game is not going to be as authentic with the licenses because it's losing the FIFA brand, right? It's up to EA, and I would love to hear Jen's point of view on this, to educate their audience and to change that perception, to make them understand that the new game is, has all the things that it had before, right? It's very unclear as if they've actually done that. Now, I'm sure they're spending tens of millions of dollars, if not more, to try to do that. But EA has a tendency to be fucking arrogant, right? That they don't need to do this type thing. So we will see. So what I think after all this is that I think sales are going to suffer initially. I think there is going to be some kind of like, this is not the real game. I'm not buying it, right? But ultimately, these same players that buy this game every freaking year, and it has been growing every year for the last forever, basically, they'll come back. Right. They'll realize from word of mouth and people playing the game that the game is exactly the same as it always been, has all the things that they love. But the only other challenge to this and the, the reason that it actually might be down versus flat, which I, is where I'm going to end up here, is that the comp is tough. Like they had a really good year last year. I think it was up like 20, 25, maybe even 30 percent year over year because of World Cup and console generation, et cetera. But because of the strong console sales and lots of things going on in the marketplace, there's more audiences that are going to buy the next gen. So anyway, net net, I think it's flat to down slightly, maybe this year through all this. That's kind of my guess. Nice. Super amazing and helpful background. I think, you know, key for people to take away is sometimes your the biz dev and the licensing and the behind the scenes is as important to the success of a product as is great game making. I also love that you said that EA has to do some marketing to educate the audience. One day we may convert Phil to brand marketing. Fun waste of money. Just remember, it's a fun waste <laughs> of money. I, I'm all about the fun. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, jeez. Okay. So to summarize on predictions from you, Chris, it sounds like maybe flat, maybe a little bit down, especially against the comps. I think I'm kind of in the same boat with the no impact, which translates to about the same prediction. I think, like you said, coming off the World Cup, even though it's the Women's World Cup, coming off of the console transition, we're probably going to see it be down a little bit. And that's, to me, completely understandable and likely predictable in the way that they forecast the business. I think from a marketing standpoint, I'm seeing a lot of really great output from those guys. The trailer for this game is is fantastic. They have a Norwegian player is the on the box of the title really going after this is a European game. Like let's just what's well, a worldwide game, but the Europeans really bring it home. FIFA is typically the number one game in all of Europe whenever it launches. So I think they're doing a lot to really transition players to understand that EA Sports FC 24 is going to be the next game for them, not looking for the FIFA on the box. To put this into context though, this is like one of the only things that matters for EA really as a company, as a stock to some degree, right? I mean, Sims delivers every year, Madden does well, but you know, their game division is kind of a, hopefully it's going to do better going forward, but it's been kind of a, a real clusterfuck over the last like, you know, five, 10 years. Apex does extremely well for them, but this game is like, I think 2 billion 
in revenue, something insane. Well, you also got to include FIFA Online. It's its own company. FIFA Online in Asia also does crazy business too, the free-to-play spinoff version of this. And there was more news buried in here that they're launching more verticals on the new brand. Like they talked about a turn-based game they're also going to be doing. Like they've had this opportunity to build FIFA into a platform because they have a marketplace. We were just talking about Sorare. They've built the Web2 version of that marketplace. And when you look at how many downloads their companion app gets, it's it's crazy. Like when you look at companion apps, they're almost all like just marketing, fun marketing brand experiments that never go anywhere. Like, you know, Need for Speed, if you want to like build your car and then like post a screenshot of it before the HD game comes out. But the companion app on FIFA actually does something. It lets you trade on the marketplace. And if you just look at the app Annie downloads and you compare those against FIFA sales, you come out with some like crazy conversion numbers. Like perhaps, you know, 50 to 80% of FIFA Ultimate Team members are using the companion app. And what are they doing? They're playing the marketplace. And I think this goes back to why Serrera is so successful. But if you're EA, how do you extend FIFA and how do you build this product? Well, why can't I use my FUT cards in a different experience? Why can't I do exactly what crypto is talking about and have interoperable experiences? They have such a great game design framework. I'd love to see that applied in, in new fronts. And this turn-based game looks interesting. There still is no sports-based yeah. auto chess. That looks like a really cool idea and a cool win. And again, I'm injecting auto chess into this. I want to see it succeed. But someone please get me a sports-based auto chess game. I think that's interesting is how do you take the management side of sports, which is very, very successful, you know, foot. Now we're going to have to figure out what the new name for foot is now that it's not FIFA. But those types of an interoperable marketplace for the card based tactical management systems is really, really interesting. I love where you're going with those product extensions and how do you make that across and by the way you can do that very easily across platform because you're not trying to send you know massive 3d gameplay across everything so as and especially as a companion app to the main app i'm sure the team is thinking about these things they've been at the forefront of cross-platform of free-to-play it's one of the franchises to really watch in terms of innovation and how you think about a brand going across multiple game types and platforms Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier your bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. 
It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Phil, the uh, doubter of brand, walk us through Sony's response to the Microsoft deal. <laughs> so Sony has made an announcement that was first reported by Nike, which is an Asian gaming research firm that Sony intends to pour $2.13 billion into gaming research and development before the end of fiscal year 2024. It'll account for a whopping 40% of Sony's entire R&D spend. Sony plans to allocate a staggering 60% of all PlayStation 5 development spending to live service games exclusively for the year ending in March, 2026. And we've talked a lot about Microsoft. We talk a lot about whether or not this deal is gonna go through, but now that it's coming to a close and it looks like this is going to happen, there's two questions that I think falls out of this. First of all, okay, you're still Phil Spencer. You now have Activision, what's, what's your next play? What's the next thing you're gonna do when you wake up and you have Activision in your portfolio? And I think you asked the same question for Sony. And of course, Sony started this before the Microsoft acquisition was happening, but these firms are always posturing against one another. And I don't think we've seen a lot on what the next step for each of these is going to be. And I think this is our first hint at a war for live service as there always has been, but just ratcheting up. Quick take, if I was gonna put on my Phil Spencer hat, I would call in all hands and be like, hello everyone. We're going to focus on a couple things. We're going to focus on the Game Pass. We're going to focus on shopping for the best developer talent for said Game Pass. And we're going to pivot hardware from console to something lightweight supporting Game Pass. That would be me. That's Phil Spencer. <laughs> Dead on. Uh, Dead on. <laughs> I hope you do this stand-up live when we go back to Istanbul. <laughs> I have some random thoughts here. I'm going to have to think about this exactly what I think Microsoft's strategy is going to be. because. First of all, Call of Duty is part of the sub should really help in theory for the platform, right? Because you get access to the best shooter on the consoles as part of a really cheap subscription. So that's good. In theory, well, let's hope some better content on the horizon, unlike Halo and the rest of the stuff that is bombed. You know, but Sony will try to hold on as much as possible with Call of Duty and all the other stuff there. But it's going to be really hard to see how the share changes in the short term. I think it's more of a longer term concern, given the fact that all the Sony people have access to at least the Call of Duty content. Because there's so much loyalty built into these console systems, it, it just doesn't happen overnight. It's a next generation issue, most likely. All the bad things that I say is, are going to happen are likely a next generation thing. Ultimately though, Microsoft will definitely move some people away from Sony with this type of subscription, you would think, at least you would hope, and I do think they will ultimately differentiate the product, Call of Duty, on the platform, even though they're technically not allowed to do that. But the recourse for Sony is really there to likely enforce any type of agreement they make 
in terms of doing things on the margin to make it better on Microsoft's platform. Eric, do you think you give some IP to Blizzard, you know, if you're Microsoft or inverse, do you think you give them Halo? I mean, why not? Like no one has played the fun. Let's see what you can do with this IP. You know, what if there's a Master Chief match three, all those silly examples, no one has really run through. Is there a play somewhere in here to do some of that? Did you say Master Chief match three? <laughs> he is, did, Laura. I was waiting for you to jump on that, like the Matchelorette. I'm not sure that was will replace the Matchelorette, but it, you it'll know. only be based on the TV. Frank. I do not take that game. <laughs> Broader synergies like that are just ridiculous. Like I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Frankly, Agreed. the Blizzard example is a great example. Like they have enough of their shit that they're working on. They're not going to pick up Halo. I mean, is it something that could happen like down the line? Maybe, right? I mean, they don't have a real shooter franchise. Do they want to? dedicated an entire team to that right maybe but i don't think that's going to be you know an early win by any stretch next five years no way maybe they have like master chief becomes a character in overwatch like i, I could see something like that right that would be actually kind of cool yeah but no and that's why this whole mobile thing is bullshit right like king is all of a sudden going to start leveraging ip from microsoft no fucking way right like they're making candy crush dude that's it end of story right they tried Bandicoot. <laughs> yeah, that was a disaster, right? Absolute disaster. And they did a Call of Duty mobile version, by the way. And if, if there are any King employees listening to this, I have asked every King employee what the fuck this Call of Duty mobile version was that King was working on. And no one can tell me what it was. Was it a dual stick shooter? Was it a location-based game? What was it? What were they doing? It was a shooter and it was fucking terrible. I know for a fact, right? It was just a terrible, 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 terrible thing that ne was never going to see the time of day. All right. But look at Take-Two and Zynga, right? Like, I think everyone was like, oh, well, Zynga is going to be able to take some of the franchises from Take-Two to mobile, and maybe they're years in development, but we haven't seen anything really come out of that deal. So it makes me a little wary, Crest, to your point, that we're going to see all of a sudden King, who is masters of the most casual games on the planet, any of their mid-core stuff has not really gone over well. Laura, check me on that. But I don't see the match with the IP and the expertise and development resources. No. I'd have to dig into their IPs to see what they could take. It's funny. I, I need to ponder on it a little bit more. What keeps coming to mind for me is Hearthstone. Like you take an IP or you take something that is known for Blizzard and then you completely put it on its head a little bit and you create something awesome. And I wonder if that, I'd have to have a think. The leadership thing is also the thing. Like, so Phil Spencer basically going to Blizzard and saying, hey, you know, we want you to make XYZ game, right? Blizzard people are like, fuck off. I came here to work on Diablo. I came here to work on, on World of Warcraft, right? I don't want to work on your crappy ass fucking IP. You know, that's not what I came here for. This can work in inverse though, right? You can go to Blizzard and say, would you like some support studios? We have a roster of studios which aren't producing revenue yeah. anymore. Do you need reinforcements right. on Overwatch to avoid the disaster you've been in? Like this, this can work both ways. Th that's not what we were talking about. That is actually the likely scenario. What we're talking though, is that they can leverage IP from Microsoft and build things at Blizzard or Activision. No, I think you're right. The inverse works. That is actually what likely will happen because Blizzard finally allowed outside developers to help them with games. So that is definitely a potential. Oh, the other thing, though, I would say is that it may like reduce a lot of pressure from the studio perspective. When you're not beholden upon shareholders the way Activision were directly, you may be less likely to do like the crazy cadence of a AAA, you know, full game release every year for Call of Duty. So they may be able to stagger that out a bit, release a game every two years instead of every year, and then just support it with live ops and other content instead. That actually might be good and ease up on the Call of Duty folks, potentially anyway. But 
the question I thought about is like, what does that impact on the main Call of Duty studios? Is that something that they would like, right? They would get paid less in theory, right? Because they'd be making less content, right? Maybe it pushes these guys out to go out and do their own teams, build their own shooters. You know, that's potential. And when with folks like Moritz and all these other lunatics, like investing all this money in new studios, perhaps that gives them the opportunity to fund their 100 to $200 million AAA projects. Who knows, right? Those are just like my thoughts, right? I don't know. what It's going to be interesting. I've heard Phil say specifically that he's going to let them do their thing, right? He's not going to be heavy handed there, but who knows? The Sony strategy is a little bit simpler in my field. So Sony is this, I think, going to be just more of the same, right? They don't pivot fast, right? This is like the Titanic moving, right? And all this fucking lip service about live services revenue and all this investment that they're making and all this other bull is kind of bullshit, frankly, because I've said this before, the majority of their IP is not software as a service ready, right? So Uncharted, Spider-Man, God of War, all these things, Last of Us, all these things are not made or designed for content cadence software as a service type stuff. So Bungie obviously will likely be most successful, you know, with direct investments in Destiny, Marathon, and whatever else they come out with. So, you know, according to this report page by Nikkei, right, they want to put 60% of all their PlayStation 5 development on live service games by the end of March. Give me a break. Okay. No fewer than 12 live services game in that timeline. 12 live services game. Exactly what the fuck is that, right? You know? And of course, they had to add this one in, right? You know, we're playing like keyword bingo here. Sony is going to break into the metaverse in a much more meaningful way, exploring avenues made up of extended reality and making use of the studios around the world to drive research and development into the space. Look, folks, if you believe any of this PR nonsense, I think you need to double check your IQ because this is absolute posturing bullshit, right? This is for the benefit of investors, period, end of send. I, I'm surprised that AI wasn't like carpet bombed in every single one of these press releases, right? This is bullshit, right? This is, none of this is true. This company takes decades to change. None of this is real, right? It's just all a fabrication of PR and investor relations hype. They're going to do the same fucking thing they've been doing forever, dude. They're going to make Last of Us. They're going to make Uncharted. They're going to make God of War again. And if they are live service games, it's going to be selling like tchotchkes or like they're going to sell like cosmetics or something like that. It's not going to be a Fortnite. You know, it's not going to be those type of things. So it'll be live service 101, right? Because the Bungie guys are amazing, but I don't think they signed up to build live service across the Sony ecosystem. They want to make games. So I'm a little bit worried about relying on one group who did live service for amazing shooters to be like, all right, we're going to build Sony's entire live service infrastructure. Like that just feels a little bit crazy to put that on that developer. No, but they've already apparently had some action ability with delaying Naughty Dog's multiplayer live service game. So they're, they're having an impact. I don't know if they're going to build out the infrastructure, but at least they're going to be some consultants and at least they're going to provide at least, I, I would hope, some sort of playbook for studios that are looking to morph their IPs into a live service. I totally agree with you, Eric. They have no live service IPs except for Destiny, which they acquired. The question is whether or not they can transform any of them or, again, make these brands bigger than a single title. You know, is there a God of War live service? I don't know, but I'd love to see a creative director take a shot at it in the slide deck. Look, I'm all about PowerPoints, man, but like that's far from an actual design that actually makes sense in the marketplace, right? You know, Jade Raymond can put all kinds of PowerPoint presentations together about her project, you know, up in the Great White North. But 
Is that going to be a real live service success? I doubt it, right? They're going to try, right? Go for it. Moving on to where I get most of my news these days. Jen, tell us about TikTok's gaming report. Oh, I'm worried if that's where you get your news. Okay, so a little context about the report that came out this week. It's called What's Next in Gaming Trend Report. It's a report from the TikTok ads team to help game teams learn more about how to leverage the platform. So just a note there that the learnings you're going to get are going to be supported by the ads team, which is just killing it, right? Everyone I talk to is allocating more and more of their budget to the TikTok platform, and it's just really working for folks. So there's a lot in here. So I'm going to summarize a couple of the key takeaways that I had, and please go in there and check it out. So number one, I think we talked about this before, 3 trillion views of game content happened on TikTok in 2022. Just astronomical numbers. Gamers are on this platform in a huge way. So they bucket the trend, they call it trend forces, into three categories. First is called actionable entertainment. So players want to engage with content versus passively consume it. So think of this as players doing UGC on game content in really cool and innovative ways. The second bucket is... <laughs> called Making Space for Joy. I just think of Marie Kondo and Sparking Joy when I see the second one. So this is the idea that players want to come to the community for really a positive experience, to be funny, creative, and even welcoming. It's a very welcoming and diverse community. So think about this as a way for you as a brand to not be taking yourself too seriously and really coming in with positivity. The third bucket is really about the community-built ideals. So this is bringing your whole self, your whole gaming identity or your gaming aesthetic. If you're a Gen Z or you have an aesthetic, right? This, for those of us that might be of a different generation, this is where you an athlete, where you a skater, where you goth. So the aesthetic is who you represent to the world and gamers have an aesthetic. And so this is where you really think about how the community self-regulates and does things like community challenges. So think of this as a leveled up version of like the ice bucket charity challenge that we might all know from a few years ago. So there's a ton here. Laura, what did you take away from the report? I thought you actually gave a really good summary, but the report is also great at breaking down the trend examples and definitions. I never classified trends that way. So that was a learning for me. After reading it, I left wanting to hire a TikTok specialist, hands down. To me, the community game challenges sound like next-gen social media for gaming and even for community. It used to be like Facebook groups to kind of manage your community. I would argue that as our audience continues to like age up and age out a little bit, it's going to start to migrate to TikTok hashtags. And instead of these like angry Facebook posts, we're going to be getting like angry TikTok videos. <laughs> From a product perspective... I love the idea of having an in-game event with the social angle on TikTok. Games like Redecor, acquired by Playtika, could explore integrating the sharing and voting piece with TikTok. And that's just me spitballing. Like you'd have to weigh the potential organics against the time spent outside of the app or build out a new way in the loop that keeps it all together. All I see is really upside for this. And honestly, maybe TikTok is the solution for IDFA. Just saying. I think you might be on to something, and I you think stop. many game companies agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> well, it's not the only solution, but I do think the fact that you are seeing more budget going to TikTok ads, more focus, and, and I love the idea of a TikTok specialist. And, you know, I think if you are not a Gen Zer and you don't live and breathe and grew up on this platform, it's really difficult to understand the language and how to leverage it. 
I think the report did a great job of setting up the ad products they offer. And clearly they did their homework on the audience and what the audience is doing and eating. There's a lot of great videos in here that showcase examples of how they're identifying their trends. So I, th I thought that was really well done. And then there's a lot in here that brands can use to get around the UA challenges that we're seeing. So a few ideas there. You know, one thing that I saw that really highlights the potential is something called branded missions. And so this is relatively new to the platform. So think about this as your ability to set up and request from that creators create certain videos around certain missions or challenges that you give them. And then they do a branded hashtag campaign. And so what's great about the way that they've set it up, it's like this platform inside of TikTok. The creators don't have to worry about the videos going on their own profiles. They just go on the hashtag. And so there's virality without the appearance that creators are selling out, right? And so there's a lot of potential for authentic content. I think they've really thought around how do you take the trends and the audience behaviors and marry that with ads product features and give game companies what they need to really leverage that. One quick quip, just because for anyone, all of my other fellow TikTok lovers, you can't see, but Eric is basically giving me the bombastic side eye. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> bombastic side oh, yeah, eye. I love it. Hashtag. <laughs> uh, this is a social network, Eric. It's called TikTok. You might have it on your phone. Maybe your kids might use it. Yeah. Your son uses it. He's 15. The only thing I got on this is I know TikTok has become a really viable channel for user acquisition, particularly given the fact that IDFA has been such a challenge for others. So it has become a great platform for that. And I know they have lots of aspirations in terms of doing things around games, which I think is cool. And I think the biggest thing about this particular platform versus others is the engagement is so insane that you have this audience that's so captured and so involved that it is a very, very attractive platform from an ad perspective, branding and user acquisition. So I think it'll be a great avenue going forward. So we'll see how they innovate. Jen, there's this question that has come up over and over again when I work with people. They want to make their games TikTokable. And the first thing I ask after they tell me they want to make a TikTokable game is what the fuck does being a TikTokable game mean? Because I, I read these reports and so much of the conversation is focused on the creatives you use. And a lot of this report seems to be focused more on the creatives. But game developers want to know what is the substance they need to put in their game to enable those moments to be organically picked up by TikTok. Is that even the right question to ask? Well, first of all, when you said everyone and their mom, I'm not even sure my mom knows what TikTok is, and that's no joke. So my mom's from New York. You just called say, it TikTok, by the way. I'm not letting you go on that Snap one, dude. Face. You sounded like <laughs> such a boomer. TikTok. Bill, Bill Belichick is in the background. I'm about to do my joke about my mom's from New York. And she seriously said this to me because she often kind of mixes up her words. She's like, Jennifer, what's a TikTok? Is that a mint? And so I, yeah, I, I bled in my joke to my upfront because I too mix up my words just like, just like my mom. All right. So no, I hear you. And I, and I feel you, you have a really good question is like, and I think Ethan talks about this all the time is make sure that your game is TikTokable is how do you communicate your core loop in a very simple way so that when people share your videos of your game, it's super clear. So what I'm going to tell you is this specific trend report doesn't really talk about that in general. What it talks about is how players are talking about repurposing, building communities around the different games that we make. But here's a few different content tips that you can kind of pull out from what I saw in this report. 
And mainly it's about giving players great assets and letting them play with your content to express themselves. So it's about not trying too hard about, you know, being self-deferential and having a sense of humor. So there's three kind of interesting things to focus on giving content. So one is create cap cut templates. So this is basically like, you know, for those of us who live in Google Slides and PowerPoint all day, these are branded templates that players can insert their own content and then they can publish it. So number two is create a branded effect. So for those of us who live through creating Snapchat filters back in the day, this is that same idea. It really gives players something that they can play with and be creative and use your brand in that way. The third one I thought was pretty cool was something called a voting sticker. Laura, you mentioned this earlier. Players can share their perspective about a feature or something else in the game. So you put some sort of content out there and you can ask players to kind of react towards that specific content. So after this, I'm going to go to TikTok school and learn how to number one, say it right and not do my mom and then come back and give you more tips and tricks. Maybe I'll figure out what is a TikTokable game experience like and I'll, I'll bring that back to you. By the way, I just looked at what bombastic side eye looks like. Dude, that's my natural state, dude. I'm in constant bombastic eye side listening to this bullshit over and over again and reading this crap, listening to fucking Phil with his goddamn free-to-play bullshit, right? It's over all over and over again, bombastic side eye. Dude, you're right. That's a good call, Miss Laura. All right. Good night, everybody. See ya. See you next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.